Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. For today's episode, I invite you to join me in the tension of pushing through a difficult time. A time when you need to muster up strength you don't even believe you have. It's a hard episode ahead, but sometimes the path to healing has to bring you deeper into the pain before you break through to the other side, to growth, and back to ease. I know it can feel like you've already been through so much that maybe you can't take it anymore, but I promise you, with the help of loved ones and knowing you are never alone. You can take it. You will face it. We can make it through anything together. Together. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the nonprofit I See That? The Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation is now the Blink of an Eye nonprofit, and Blink of an Eye is on social media. You can find out more about the Blink of an Eye initiatives, trauma healing, new episodes, and more. Blink of an Eye is servicing spinal cord injury families in the crisis hours and days immediately following injury, when their lives are turned upside down potentially forever. Hear about the blink-of-an-eye cutting-edge relational approaches to trauma healing, medical navigation, and emotional and spiritual support. If you are interested in volunteering or becoming part of the blink-of-an-eye support teams in any way, fill out an information form at www.blinkofaneye.org. If you want to engage with a financial contribution, you can do that too at blinkofaneye.org. Follow Blink of an Eye on Instagram at blinkofaneye nonprofit and on Facebook at the URL facebook.com slash www.blinkofaneye.org. Links to these platforms will be in the show notes. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 19, Boot Camp Rehab. This week in the Blink of an Eye story, Things are becoming ever more harrowing. As you may remember from previous episodes, Archer had been steadfast that his number one rehab goal was to breathe on his own, independent of a ventilator and machines. Well, in order to make that goal a reality, there were high hurdles to leap over, and it seemed Archer's mental resolve might be paling under the effort to take each breath. It was also a confusing time, with mixed medical messages. But one thing was clear. 
we had to step in with some tough love if Archer were to meet Shepard's rehab goals. It wasn't easy or pretty, but nothing about this was easy. It was another time for us to be strong together, but this time in a new way, bearing each other's burdens. This episode will bring you deep into both the struggle and the parent-child relationship on a recovery odyssey from a traumatic life-altering injury. You may be touched in ways you don't expect. Before we begin the story, let's take a moment to resource ourselves, focusing on one thing that helps anchor you. Maybe it's the chair holding you. Maybe it's a scent or something visual you like to look at in your environment that enervates and calms your senses. Maybe it's the ability to rotate your neck left and right with a gentle stretch that reminds you how good it is to care for the muscles that hold you so you can move with ease. Whatever resource you choose, feel the goodness and the gratitude for a body that allows you to move freely and carry you in this moment of listening together. In gratitude, let us all take in a deep, full-of-life breath to allow the openness to receive this chapter of our story. Here we go. Family and Friends Update October 13th, 2015 Day 70 Tuesday When the going gets tough, the tough get going. We've been in the trenches this last week to now. I thought we had been in the trenches, but these are new trenches. Archer's choice of breathing had consequences for his rehab potential. It's hard to do both, apparently. But I say not for Archer, not for the Semps, not when you do your part and turn over the rest to God. It's boot camp now. So here are a few of the harsh realities. In order for Archer to wean off the vent, medical opinions still varying at Shepard, whether that is even possible during our time here, given the level of his injury and lack of innervation to his diaphragm. Archer needs 5,000 calories a day, minimally, just for the work it takes breathing and sucking out the mucus and focus on breath. His feeding tube now provides 1,250 calories, so he needs to make up the rest by regular food intake. That's pretty tough when he can't swallow well, has a raw throat from gagging from the tube suctions down the trach, and he still cannot smell because of the mucus buildup in his sinuses which means he still cannot taste. 
all the secondary effects of the ventilator. We could go back to 2,200 calories on the feeding tube, but we are also trying to wean Archer's body off of that to ward off any infection of being long-term on the peg so that he can begin to have a bit more normalcy or with at least one less tube in his body and one less drip bag hanging at night. That would be nice. His feeding tube used to be cut at 8 a.m., so he also didn't have much appetite. Now, we will cut it at 4 a.m., hoping that might spur his appetite. But it's not even so much all of that as it is ongoing nausea. He eats. He feels like he's throwing up. Not good. He needs calories desperately. He and I weigh about the same now. Not good. He's six foot two. And some foods also produce mucus, which he, as you know, is committed to avoiding, like dairy. We found muscle milk and Ensure and other high-calorie substitutes, but they make him sick too. It's not just lack of appetite. We really need to turn the corner on appetite. Please, pray for us that Archer will gain an appetite and no longer feel nausea. Today, we resorted to an anti-nausea drug. I told him he could close his eyes and I would force-feed him if I had to. Not funny, I know. But like I said, it's been a tough week. I was just blown away, though, by a piece of information that came serendipitously when I was inquiring about Archer's weight loss and what is expected at this stage as he grows thinner. When she said 5,000 calories minimally, I gasped. 5,000 calories. I knew how hard he has been working, but I see now also what it will take. 5,000 calories just for breathing and the work it takes to get the mucus out of his lungs. Count your blessings. You don't have to lose weight that way. But it's also a learning of how deep belly breathing and really taking in air not only is so very, very good for us and calms our flighty spirits and fills our soul, but it is also good for us in burning calories and keeping us alive and fit. It's interesting, isn't it? All the monks or holy ones you know and yoga instructors and mindfulness teachers and all of us who practice breathwork, we are burning lots of calories. As an aside, I really believe the world could be changed through breath work. It's miraculous. Last week was grueling because Archer does not want to give up on his number one priority, to breathe. He shouldn't have to. Please, take in another breath. Give life force to yourself and to the world. 
It's so good for all of us. And send some of that breathwork life force our way. We're clear breathing. I know the day is coming. Thank you, dear Lord and God, for the amazing capacity we have to breathe. And for all the prayer warriors who can pray and breathe at the same time. I do have a bit of exciting news. In order for Archer to wean off the vent, he needs to blow a consistent 1,000 in vital capacity. But they'd even take 800 if Archer could blow that consistently. Bummer that he is only able to blow 300 from the 150 he was able to do after his first 30 days in ICU. When he blew 650 in the Shepherd ICU, I thought I would dance a jig. But his pulmonologist later chalked it up to an aberration when Archer was not able to do it again. But yesterday, he was back to 600. So we shall see. We are headed in the right direction. Pray for a big volume capacity. Go outside or in the shower and just belt out your favorite poem or tune or expression or cheer and feel the expansiveness of your lungs. Did you know we are hardwired to take in a side breath every few breaths that really expands our lungs? Oh, the glory of our lungs. But back to boot camp. I think it is fair to say that I felt Archer had been a bit cornered by a decision neither he nor I fully comprehended the ramifications of. I was a bit agitated, I will admit, at what seemed to me like mixed messages we had been given. Many, actually, from the first day in ICU. Messages of, take it slow. Weaning is a slow process. We will go at the pace of Archer's body. You can only do so much. Archer will lead us on what he needs. But in rehab, it's a totally different mentality. And it felt like we missed the speech on that, as they say. There was a day last week when it seemed the message was, we wean folks from the vent fast here, and if you don't wean, we can't keep you. Well, that might be a bit harsh, but I think there was a piece of that, and we were not fitting the bill. Archer was too sick. Another seeming mixed message happened when Archer had the mouth ventilator tube removed and then the trach put in for the new ventilator, and then the glorious day when the apparatus in his esophagus was removed. The message in ICU was, hooray, Archer can eat real foods, give him anything he wants, smoothie, ice cream, whatever. It was celebratory and good. We all cheered and were buoyed by that. Remember that lovely day 
They said, We'll still keep him on the feeding tube, but he can eat. Perhaps I was so happy for Archer on that day of reprieve in Shepherd's ICU that I missed the read-between-the-lines message of, Hooray! Archer, you can eat now, and you need 5,000 calories a day to keep up the good fight, buddy. So get to stuffing your face quickly. So, I lived a few hours or so early last week with a bad case of the woulda, coulda, shouldas. You can probably hear them, hmm? Not pretty. I know better than that. I even caught myself. But I was angry at the mixed messages and that I could have had a different program with Archer had I known. Okay, harder than what we had? Well, maybe not, as far as effort goes, but certainly different regarding calories. For every offering of food that he merely took a small bite or sip of, I would have pressed, No way, Jose! Arch, you need 3,000 more calories to get off that vent, and you're up to it. I may have sprayed more chloroseptic in his throat or alternated more frequently with throat coat tea, a wonderful discovery shared with me by the sound mixer I went to see recently to test my voice as a potential for an audiobook version of our book, who told me that all the singers and narrators he works with drink Throat coat tea. Voila! It's good for Archer, too. But had I known about the expectation, I may have asked Archer every half an hour what he wanted to eat. I may have set some goals for him of what he had to eat. But no, I was in the dark. I reminded myself of that time the boys and I ventured to the horse races in Saratoga on our annual August visit to Uncle Will, who trained those sometimes winning horses. We were at the betting counter, and Dutch had begged me to bet on his behalf, $3 rather than the regular $2 allotment I gave to each of the children for each race. Well, Dutch had really wanted to bet more, and I had said, no. As it turns out, his long-shot horse one, and at the ripe old age of seven, he, Dutch, had that winning experience of $67 on a $2 bet. As we entered near the winner's circle, thanks to Uncle Will, Dutch continued to tug at my dress, repeatedly saying, Mama, you should have let me have $3. I could have won $100. I said, That's enough, Dutch. Just enjoy that we are here with Uncle Will. We are here to have fun, etc. But when that did not quell him, Uncle Will crouched down low and got eye level with Little Dutch and said, Dutch, take it from me. If you live with the woulda, coulda, shouldas, it'll kill you. And so it was. I was doing a woulda, coulda, shoulda here at Shepherd, and it was a pure waste of good energy. Well, if you find yourself doing the same thing and beating yourself up over if you had only known 
or taking out your anger on someone else and blaming them for not telling you? You might consider telling the other person in a kind way that you didn't know, wish you had, not sure how you missed it, and ask if you can figure out together how to get on the right page and move on. That's exactly what I did. I crossed my fingers I had not alienated the staff. But a meeting was then set for this week. Tomorrow, I'll let you know how it goes. Well, as it turns out, that meeting will be a medical meeting. So I asked if we could have a group meeting to get on the same page about goals and expectations. Well, that will be later in the week. So you can now imagine what the rest of last week was like trying to get mega non-dairy calories into Archer, wedged between the full-time job of home health training that I am now immersed in as I evolve from a support person learning through observation to a hands-on caregiver. No free rides here. And it should be. It's all good, but it's boot camp. I recalled how sudden it was that I was given a piece of paper with various lines and what was called home health training that I was scheduled into over the next three to four days. Not Archer, but I. But of course, Archer was the person I was practicing on. Bathing bowel program, dressing, undressing, peg, trach, lung machine, and a class on understanding ADA laws were all on the schedule. I was eager to learn and up for this teaching, but it was happening lightning fast as staff checked the boxes literally after each module I fulfilled. I later learned that this is the sign of being discharged. But unbeknownst to me at the time, rehab facilities have a protocol checklist of the training they need to provide a family before they discharge you. I couldn't figure out why we were on this rocket docket, but more on that later. I was so naive to the ways of a rehab facility. And here I thought we had dodged that bullet a couple weeks prior. The words discharge date had not yet been uttered again by anyone to me. Talk about mixed messages, as I showed up eager and sunny to learn, only to know I was unwittingly paving our own road straight out of the Shepherd Center. The irony, when and if they were to tell us to go home before Archer could breathe on his own, is that we would have accomplished nothing, is that was Archer's number one rehab goal. October 15th, 2015. I am learning to operate Archer's many rehab pieces of equipment, including the attendant setting on his wheelchair, the Hoya lift mounted on the ceiling and used to raise him up and out and back into bed, the way to turn his body with the help of two other care providers to get the Hoya lift harness under his body, 
the correct crisscrossing of the straps onto the steel hooks on the large bar. The manual Hoya left used to raise him up into his power chair and back into his bed when a ceiling lift is not available, such as when outside the building or home. The ventilator tubing and settings, the portable ventilator tubing and settings, the machine and tubes for the vest Archer wears that shakes him to loosen the mucus in his lungs, how to put it on, the anexuflator machine where I throw the right switches at the right intervals at the right pressure settings with the right count of timing to vacuum out his lungs through his trach with forced coughs rather than invading the lungs. The hand-operated airbag attached to his trach and pumped at the right pressure and the right rhythm to match Archer's capacity breathing and mental needs and the dreaded but life-sustaining deep suction machine with all its tubes, special hygiene gloves kit, how to put on the double plastic gloves that are germ-free and how to keep them that way, touch nothing, and similar airbag as the backup for when the anexiflator is not enough, etc., etc., etc. I was and am also learning how to care for Archer's other basic needs that are more personal and related to hygiene. His daily bathing, 90 minutes a morning, and his showering, two hours a morning, but only two times a week, since Archer does not perspire below his chest. Getting Archer fed, which he prefers in his powered chair, but when the morning takes so long, sometimes it is in bed. When meals are in his power chair, we are now using the MAS, manual arm support contraption, regularly that I need to set up and get Archer's arm into the slings as well so that he can practice using it for breakfast or at least spearing mandarin oranges. It's getting Archer dressed, though, which is the trickiest part, to make sure the tubes and wires are not messed up, but more importantly, to get a V-neck shirt around his arms, lifting them no more than at a right angle, and then getting the slack and the material to go over his trach and head without causing his shoulders to spasm in pain. So I thread them through, just like any parent has dressed a baby or taken a shirt off a sleeping toddler. It's really the same techniques. I just have to go a little slower. But the real tricky part is getting Archer's compression socks on. They have been custom ordered for him and take a while to stretch and get around his feet because they are so tight and dense and with very, very little stretching potential. Think of putting a tight casing around a sleeping bag. And I need to remember to hand wash them every night and lay them out to dry. The black socks for the day are different from the pair of white compression stockings that I need to put on him to get out of bed in the morning and into the special shower chair before a shower, the latter of which is a bit more malleable. Even a few of the staff dread the daily black compression socks as they are bears to get on. But get on we must. And we do. 
When I don't think my hands are strong enough to stretch and pull them on, I remind myself of how grateful I am to have my hands to put these socks on my dear son. And I remind myself of the effort it is taking Archer to breathe, even with the help of the vent. My Lord, it takes my breath away again to just imagine needing that many calories more than the feeding tube just to breathe and cough up the gunk in his system. Let's all take a big, huge breath. Just take it right now and push it all out. It feels so darn good. Do it again. Push it all out. And now, look at your hands. Marvel at your hands. Spread out your fingers. Turn your hands palm side up. They're so beautiful. Move your wrists. Now wriggle your fingers. Notice how easy it is to send a simple command to your hands, to your wrists, to your fingers. Voila! They move. Notice how easy it is to send a simple command to your nose, to your mouth, to your lungs, to your diaphragm, to your esophagus, to your chest, to your belly. Marvel at how in a mere nanosecond mental command your system does what you ask. And it does do because it is fueled in part by the breath. It takes a deep breath, which calls upon many, many different organs and parts of the body to move in sync. And that movement refreshes you. And you don't even know how it all works, nor do I. It's a miracle, this body of ours. It's hard to imagine how any doctor, physicist, scientist of any variety who studies the body could not be in constant awe of the body and not believe in God and his majesty and power and believe deeply. That alone would keep us all humble. Our spinal cord is packed with thousands and thousands of different electrical wires going places and firing and regulating us every nanosecond of the day. It is a miracle the way that we move and breathe and think and go about our day. Truly, a miracle as a human body is to this day a true mystery for any scientist since no one or multiple someones have yet the ability to explain all aspects of the human body and how it works. And thus no one really knows its potential. No one. It's very humbling. It's awe-inspiring to me.
The body is the temple for the creative miracle. I've been thinking a lot about this and about you too. You are like each of the fibers of Archer's spinal cord, being connected in ways we're not even fully aware of. Each one of these fibers braided together in some divine way creates a superhighway, the spinal cord, and each doing something different but all necessary, all one body. You are the body for the creative miracle. In the midst of these packed, exhausting days, I have these moments where I really see the miracle. I envision a different kind of mucus, a very thin, white, lacy mucus in Archer's spinal cord, active and weaving connections in ways we can't see or even imagine. It's very beautiful, milky white. I know, I know you are saying, what in the world is she saying? Mucus. Beautiful? Yes, mucus. I own fully that I have this love-hate relationship with Archer's mucus production. But truly, just like so many other aspects of this journey, that which Archer battles is also what keeps him alive. And it may be the very stuff that helps foster the creative miracle. So this is my latest thinking, informed by a sort of wise knowing, as if from a sage. I hold to a divine belief that Archer's mucus production is also part of his healing. Yes, in a really weird way, I think it is part of the mystery of what his body is doing right now. While it is baffling, Shepard, and causing frustration with the calories they would like to use for arm therapy, I think the rate of its production must be in direct proportion to the milky white connections being made in his spinal cord as we speak and certainly when he is at rest. I might liken it to morning sickness. For any pregnant mom who has had morning sickness, oh, the dreaded morning sickness that you might have begged your body to have go away. Well, I recall I would have it terribly with all five of my babies, and not just in the morning, but different times of the day as well, and it went on for a couple months with each. I remember clearly feeling this strange comfort amidst the discomfort, an awful feeling that you're about to retch, but that it was good because my baby was very alive. It was a comforting reminder of the life I carried. I so much loved being pregnant. Every time, from my 20s into my 40s, I really did. The honor and mystery that I could carry life in my womb. So that belief, then, that morning sickness was life force, is similar 
to the belief now that in some way, Archer's mucus production is life force as well. So Archer is the vessel for carrying new life in his spinal cord. So the mucus is necessary. Like morning sickness, we all know it will pass and we want it to. And we don't want to succumb to it and have it get the better of us. But we can't just stop eating when we had morning sickness. No, we had a higher purpose, and that was to nurture a growing baby inside our womb. And just like Archer now, we can't and won't succumb to the mucus and let it build up into plugs. We have a higher purpose to attend to, to breathe, and then rehab. The production itself is serving a purpose. And we just have to get those plugs out and get the mucus plugs out we did. Here's what happened. I became painfully aware that Archer has to maximize every day that he has at Shepherd and the slow weaning was holding him back. Everyone had thought it would be sequential, and I suppose it still is. But Shepard's lead doctor assigned to us wants our focus on the rehab. I asked Archer what his goals were again, and he articulated to me his goals in this order. One, to breathe without the vent. Two, to have use of his arms, his wrists. Three, to reduce his use of pain medication. He has been very stoic. By nature, Archer's not a big man on campus personality. He's more like the guy most people know, not because he's everywhere glad-handing, but because he's hanging out and is kind and smart and funny. He's always been loved by his teachers because he is smart and engaged and a lifelong learner and can be counted on for helping others. He's a pretty straight shooter. There's very little BS about Archer when it comes to serious matters and so it is with his recovery. If he doesn't have something to say, he doesn't. I wanted to know if perhaps he might be depressed, though. I mean, who wouldn't be? Billy and I think that one of our chief jobs is to watch carefully for this. I asked Archer if he'd want to consult with a psychiatrist. I promised him I'd get him a good one, not someone who would just throw him on meds, but someone who had experience with other adolescents as quadriplegics. Okay. Pretty narrow study, really, when there are only so many quads, thank God, a year. He said, maybe, but not now. Interesting. I asked his main doctor, and she was surprised I asked. And she said, oh no, what you're seeing is common. I mean, she continued, he's only 17 and his whole life has been taken from him. How would you feel 
if you were in a body that didn't work and you were 17? Well, my first reaction to this was relief. Because up to that point, most of the other patients she referred to were either older, in college, or working. The experience of a 16, just turned 17-year-old is vastly different from a 19-year-old or a 24-year-old. But it was the first I had ever heard from her that she had compassion for the experience itself and for his age. But my other reaction, more secondary, was even more compassion for Archer. Whatever it takes to help him, we will. And his whole life, as we knew it, might be gone. Maybe. Maybe not. But he has a whole new life ahead of him. I really, really believe that. Please, believe that with me. This is where when our Father is really helpful. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that said, it's okay for you to talk to me realistically. After all, we have to live in this world too. Our doctor's world. She said last week that given Archer's status and what he could do and not do, that he might not have what it takes for the rehab desired. What? Did I hear that correctly? Archer might not have what it takes? Whoa, that took some discernment for me. I was flooded with many emotions. What was she talking about? I decided, after some spinning, that I wanted to see the angel that was disguised as a doctor messenger who questioned if Archer could do what they wanted him to do at Shepherd. Shepherd weans patients early from the vent so they can focus on other rehab. Okay, I get that. On good information, I also knew they send away patients they cannot wean. I felt our future was precarious, and so much of it was out of Archer's control. The level of his injury, the intake of ocean water. But I wanted to find something in what she said that might be in our control. When caught between a rock and a hard place, I felt we had everything to lose and nothing to lose. But nothing to lose is a dangerous place to be as people do harmful things at that point. I had to gather myself. I wanted to reframe it as everything to gain. About the same time of this interaction, I had been in training on the Inexiflator machine. My teacher, a veteran respiratory therapist, was excellent. It was a machine that scared me a bit, but one I knew 
would be a godsend, as it had the capability of clearing Archer's lungs out much less invasively and more powerfully than the deep suctions that fished around in the pockets of the dark lungs from mucus plugs, while the large, powerful vacuum of the in-exuflator would suck it out. With Archer's help, if he could do it. Thus far, for two days, every time the exuflator was used, I like to say to Archer, like Dr. Seuss, and now the amazing exuflator. But Archer's right shoulder was thrown into new pain. It was like having a broken shoulder of the forced coughing of the exuflator because it would move the broken right shoulder back and forth, sending shooting pain, new pain, more pain into Archer's back and shoulder and making him nauseous. It was excruciating for him and Archer had come to refuse it and actually instead asked for the deep suctions. It's true. We had been working on new pain management, including a lidocaine patch on his right shoulder and the continued Butrans patch, but that was about to expire. I was fully aware of his pain and condition. But after the conversation about Archer's status and choice, rendering him to a potential fate to be sent to a nursing home facility or such if we didn't stay at Shepherd. I went into his room and basically said, Archer, as of this moment, it's boot camp. It doesn't matter the pain in your right shoulder. It doesn't matter that you're nauseous with the pain and with everything you eat. It doesn't matter you can't smell and don't have an appetite. It doesn't matter you're still at six or seven in pain, even with the Butrans patch. It doesn't matter, Arch. We are using this exuflator and we're going to get all that effing mucus out of your lungs now. Do you hear me? Do you want to go home where we don't know what we're doing yet? You want to go lie in a bed in another facility where they won't take care of you? Shepherd is the best chance you've got, Arch. It's been a battle, but we're in a new war now. We're going to get tough like we have never before. You got it? You hear me? I was crying. Do you hear me? I said as I raised my voice. And he was saying, okay. I said, I love you, Arch. You know I do. It's you and me. This is our best chance here at Shepherd. You've got to dig with every fiber in your being to breathe and not be afraid. We're not leaving here. You hear me? You're going to breathe. And I said, I'm getting the respiratory therapist and we're doing the inexiflator. I left to get her. She returned and I turned the machine on, adjusted the valves, 
check the pressure gauges, and put on new tubing. I got the airbag contraption and the saline bottle, and I positioned myself and quickly took off the vent tube from the trach and put on the bag tube. I got Arch stabilized, and with a hand rhythm, he was okay with. I quickly took off the tube of the bag and squirted in some saline, put the tube of the exaflator on his trach, threw the presser switch with my right hand to the right, and told Archer, breathe, one, two, and then I threw the pressure switch to the left and told him, cough, cough, cough. The mucus was like a prairie dog coming in and out of its hole in the tube and sliding right back down out of sight. I could see it. It was large. The plug was big. We were going after it. I didn't let up with the hand airbag. Instead, I said, again, and I threw the switches. Breathe, cough, cough, cough. I could see more of the mucus, and I jiggled the tube on the trach to make more suction, and up came this massive yellow slime, filling the tube a couple inches that was about the diameter of a quarter. I yelled, again. Archer was writhing in pain, but I couldn't see it or I chose not to. We had to get this crap out of him, and we would. More mucus came out. I took off the tube and went back to the handheld bag. Archer was furious with me, and he yelled silently with no voice, no. And I said, yes, we are doing it again. And we did three more times. He was so angry with me. His intensity reminded me of the same awful, super frightened, out of control, hideous expression and contortion he had on his face when at the ICU in Atlantic City when they put blood pressure medicine in his antibiotic drip bag for hours by mistake. But this time, it was strikingly different emotionally because this time Archer was furious and as I threw the valve switch and said breathe and then cough 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 he was livid and silently screaming at me I will kill you and he said it again I will you and I looked at him and he was saying kill you and I screamed this is going to save you Archer again breathe cough 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 two more times and we had a full eight inches solid of mucus plugs and that large tube that's a whole raft of the stuff. It was almost merciless on him. Harder than any deep suction yet. I should have taken a picture, as that picture would have been worth a million zillion words. Or perhaps only two. Tough love. Boot camp. We did it. It was harrowing.
It was awful. But he was better the next three days. I swear he's going to turn a new corner. It took a lot out of both of us, but it was necessary. I literally felt like this is what it must be like on battlefields. Our men and women who fight for our freedom and our wounded are such heroes. Later that night, I told Arch I was sorry I had to do that. He said it was okay. I was so relieved. I said, I don't want to negate my apology, but I would do it again. And he nodded very serenely and said, I know. I said, you know, I love you, Arch. And I only did it because we have to. You have to. It's time. We are hard workers. We have grit. We can do this. You're not alone. There was silence. And I said, in a voice I was aware was quivering, Arch, you know you're not alone. God is right here with you and all the people praying for you. You must feel that support. Do you? He shook his head. Yes. And I said, you're going to get better. You are. This is not going to last forever. You've got to believe that. The kind of desperation to convey what I wanted him to understand, these words just tripped out of me. You know I hate bloody fluids and blood and snot and all the above, Arch, you know that. But if this is what it will take to help you, I swear I will do whatever it takes. I'll put my teeth on that trach and suck that fucking mucus out of you with my mouth if I have to. And I began to cry again. <laughs> and Archer began to cry too. And we cried for a long time together. And I leaned over and kissed his cheek. And then he looked right at me with those soft, gray, green eyes and mouth. I know you would, Mom. And I said, 
You know I love you. And he mouthed, I love you too. It was quite a day. That was Monday. And so the week continued. It was rough, but we made some new progress. Looking back on that experience, I feel so many emotions. Like almost every step on the journey back then, it felt like this was the hardest. It felt harrowing and like something we might not get through. I also was aware of a kernel of doubt in my mind, and it was like, how dare you insidiously take root in our garden of potential? Go away, doubt. But it was like shepherd's will over ours. And I wondered if they knew more about my son than I did with all their experience. I felt drained. Archer and I had both given all we had. And as I looked at Archer in the dark of the night, as he slept, the only salve I felt about the day was that there was no doubt in my mind that Archer knew I held his goal and choice to breathe on his own very deeply in my heart. And that I knew that he knew I would do everything in my power to help him breathe on his own. But I wondered at what cost. I scared myself. Looking back, I have even greater respect for Archer's strength to persevere through that. And then after that, working so very hard with such suffering to breathe on his own when his body did not seem capable. And even when Shepard, the institution, didn't believe he could. But I held out for the creative miracle, and I was very close to my rosary beads. But that scene wore me out emotionally, and I wondered if it would scar archers in my relationship. I was getting mentally wrung out too, with being in limbo and the ongoing struggle to get a definitive answer that Archer could continue at Shepherd and that we would get the help we needed. I was also working on coordinating the rehab of our home, but not certain of the needs Archer would have if he were still on a ventilator when we went home. And that was wearing. And Billy continued to press me to sell my building. It was so much. I'd also started flying out of Atlanta on some Fridays to do book talks and to work on the mediation case I was assigned, praying that that income would stave off the sale of our building where we had our business and earned our living. But even with all that, it was this new demand on my own physical body that really took me by surprise. I had not thought through who 
actually would be taking care of Archer in the way he was being cared for at Shepherd by a whole team of nurses, techs, and therapists. Not to mention the rehab team. I was so focused on Archer's mental state and emotional well-being, constantly fighting to not have them add more narcotics than those he was already on, and all we had to do to help him to breathe so he would improve so we could go home. But I had never stopped to calculate or comprehend what going home really meant and what lay before us with his actual daily care. I continued having to perform literally for staff who would come into the room in the late morning, direct me what to do and stand around and watch me start the various daily maintenance tasks for a quadriplegic on a ventilator, which I was learning. After demonstrating how I could get Archer up out of bed using the Hoya lift and how I could get him into a shower chair and roll him into the handicapped bathroom and shower him, taking off half of my clothes, leaving me in my bra and pair of pants rolled up as we were both soaked as I bathed him, taking care not to get water in the various tubes. They would then leave me with Archer alone, by and large, to finish toweling him off and getting him dressed. They would reappear on and off most of the rest of the day as I managed the next five to six hours of care for Archer on my own. I was learning how to undress and dress him, how to thread his body into the clothes like a baby, how to roll him sideways and put on his pants and work with all the tubes, how to clean his trach, how to clean his peg, how to change out his vent tubes, how to lift and move him and position him to his chair so there were no wrinkles of clothing under him or behind him to cause him wounds, how to feed him and suction him at intervals when he could not breathe, and how to use the anexiflator, the machine which they used constantly. The only major task I had not yet learned was the program, which is what the staff would call the bowel program, which needed to be done in the morning and evening. As Archer's spinal cord injury, complete injury, meant that he had no ability to go to the bathroom on his own. I guess I knew I had to learn these things, but it was daunting that I was just one person and not a team of nurses and techs. I was surprised at my strength, though, and equally surprised at my weakness. It was boot camp for me, too. It did not increase my confidence, ironically. (laughs) No, the impact it had on me is that it was causing me to wonder how any of this would be possible at home and how precarious Archer's existence was going to be if we messed up in any way at home, as there would not be all these monitors 
and staff. I felt even greater resolve from a very practical level to go toe-to-toe with Shepard for whatever it took to keep Archer there as long as we possibly could so he could get stronger and off the ventilator. We had to rid him of the burden of the many tubes, oxygen tank, breathing machine, ventilator, saline drips, rubber glove packages, and not to mention that large rubber puff bag. All of this, which took up hours and hours of his daily living. I found this personal journal entry from this day. Archer Semft is tough. Shepard may not see that. I do. And no matter how tired I am, it is nothing compared to the effort Archer gives to just live. My exhaustion is nothing compared to what I imagine he is experiencing. Nothing. Help me, Lord, to never forget this and to never, ever complain. He is alive, and I am forever grateful. I did have an unwavering faith in Archer. Sometimes it was fixed to a specific goal, such as praying for the creative miracle that would allow Archer to walk again, or to the more immediate goal of allowing Archer's lungs to heal enough for him to blow 800 on the breath test. But even deeper than this, I had a belief in his life force, his soul's mission on this earth in this lifetime. I firmly believe that God doesn't want any of us to suffer. And I never forgot Archer's God-given choice that he made to live. I knew God would never abandon him or leave him without capacity to live that life that he chose. We just had to make it through this rough patch. The boot camp was not going to be forever. Archer would get better. Although we had been at the Shepherd Center long enough for me to take off any rose-colored glasses I had arrived with, their standards of spinal cord injury excellence and the potential they originally saw for Archer's recovery still stirred in my heart. Shepard had the resources and the personnel to make Archer's goal to breathe independently a reality. I just had to have them see that and we needed to be on the same page and we needed a little more time. As I reflected back on my original phone call with the Shepherd Center and why we chose to go to Shepherd, I had a chance to interview Tara Grimes from Shepherd. Tara is in admissions and is the access case manager for the Mid-Atlantic region for Shepherd. She is responsible for meeting with families who have been referred to Shepherd, assessing if the patient is a good fit for their program, and helping to arrange the logistics for the patient to be transferred. In our conversation, Tara and I talked about the difficulties and she shared some of the specifics of Shepard's approach to ventilator weaning. Here is a short excerpt. Take a listen. 
all we had been praying and working with were his lungs, frankly, the whole time. So he could actually even just take in oxygen. He was so caught between a rock and a hard place with the ability to breathe in oxygen and then the, yeah. of course the machine pushing it. Well, I think the perception of meaning is a little different at Shepherd. And I just, from my experience, when I worked at Shepherd as an occupational therapist, I was in the ICU and I did work with a high quadriplegic team. So when the pulmonologist in the ICU at Shepherd, they're taking a definitely different perspective. So instead of the patient being lying down all the time and, you know, only rolling side to side, we're getting them up. I mean, you know, we were trying, as long as they were medically stable and, you know, in Archer's case, he might not have been all the time. Um, but the perception of just mobility. I learned that from you, this notion that if he could get up, we had thought that the two times in almost 30 days, the only two times that he had been put into a chair, we were told it was to help with the discharge of the lung fluid that, mm-hmm. that had built up, right? But indeed, I learned from you, you know, this is really good for his overall well-being. It's good for his blood pressure. It's good for his dysregulation. And I, I had still never heard the word autonomic dysreflexia until I got to Shepherd. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just more like, you know, his, his wonky blood pressure. And yeah. I watched that when we did get Archer up, oh, it was very hard. Everything kind of went haywire and and. And I think everybody was sort of afraid to lift him because of all the tubes and everything like that. It was really arduous. But I observed his heartbeat and his oxygen saturation rate and his pressure. I I observed them at a better place. As we begin to close with the reminder of when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I thought I would share with you an excerpt of another interview I had with Bernadette Morrow, Director of Information and Resource Services at the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. You might recall Bernadette from season one, as it was she who called me off the record when we were struggling at Atlanticare ICU. It's not the role the Reeve Foundation usually plays, getting involved on the front end of an SCI, but a college friend of mine from the University of Virginia, Mac McElroy, had called Bernadette and told her about us. She began reading the Archer blogs, and then she reached out to me. It was she who told me about Shepard and their adolescent unit. As the months went by, it was she, Bernadette, herself a C5 quadriplegic, who always knew when and how to offer support to me in the various intense times during the recovery process. There were a lot of those moments when you hung in there with me and we really became uh, texting friends. And you would check in with me at, at the times like, like you knew. Well, I guess you may have been following some of the writings then too. No, I just knew because I knew how the I know how the hospital ICUs are working, and you may have just posted something. So I would text you and say, "I know it's a really rough time. Hang in there; it'll get better." And then you'd respond. But I don't sleep. Uh, clearly, you didn't sleep a lot when he was in rehab. 
nobody slept and they were rough early days. And um, unless you've been through it or understand it, it's hard to be there for somebody. It's painful. And even when you've been through it, it's painful. It really is. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, like, like what insight, piece of advice, what would you want spinal cord injured family to know? And I also just want to put it out there. What would you want a family that has not ever experienced any kind of a spinal cord injury, any type of a setback with their child to know? It can happen to anybody in a blink of an eye. And so what I'd want families who've never been through this is to realize that adversity of any kind, not just physical, but adversity can help anybody at any minute. You may think you're protected and you're in this this bubble, but your bubble can pop. And what needs to happen is that you need to have the grace and willingness to be open, to accept help, to share your fears if we're, we're comfortable, but put your pride aside and do what's best for your family member. And that's, something, that's one of the things that your family did is you made great sacrifices. And, but I don't, you've never heard you call them sacrifices, but you made great sacrifices in order to, to continue to re- remodel your home, to get everything in place for Archer. It impacted you. And, and what you did with your business and selling your office that you'd had for all those years. And, um, but it was knowing in your heart that sometimes, yeah, you get smacked by adversity and you've had this gilded life and you're not expecting it. Now, what do you do? And my father used to say, it's not because you make a mistake or something bad happens to you. It's what you do after it happens that says what your character is. Many years later, with a little more arm's length distance, I am reminded of how important loving and conscientious caregivers are. It is practically impossible for one family member or one parent or even a set of both parents to provide sustained, high-quality care or their quadriplegic loved one who's Asia A complete without repercussions, even when they have survived boot camp. A caring team is essential. And you might be part of someone's care team in small and large ways. As we close, I am constantly reminded of the raw power of believing in someone and the unbridled power of knowing someone believes in you. Maybe you have had such an experience on either side of that equation. But for me, believing in divine source, I knew that God always believed in me. And so I always wanted to believe in God. I hope today's episode brings you some strength to push through when you absolutely must push through, and that it brings you wisdom to know if you do need to surrender and when you need to stand strong. I hope you find the balance. I hope you find the resources that help keep you grounded, whether it's spending time doing something for someone you care about or just being with people you love. 
or pausing to just breathe in good, fresh air and cherish your lungs that work and keep you alive. I'm so grateful to have you on this journey with me. Just knowing you are there, giving your energy, time, and attention to this story brings so much healing to these experiences. And I hope and trust that the healing is reciprocal. That there are parts of your life and your being that resonate, that are touched, and that learn from Archer's journey. We need each other. Sometimes we need each other to be a soft place to land and share our vulnerable selves. And sometimes we need each other to hold space for the bigger vision and to help us gather our strength to push through and keep going. Miracles do happen. Pray with all your heart for your miracle. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. Tune in next week for our companion, Blink of an Eye Trauma Healing Learning 19. Thank you for listening. And thank you for telling your friends about the Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com. Dot com.